This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? My name's Brendan O'Brien, and welcome to the Astrophys podcast. The title of today's podcast is Detecting Pulsars and Neutron Stars Part 2, and a news segment called Ian's Tangent. Each session, we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. For Wednesday, the 24th of August. As usual, we'll cross straight over to Tver in Russia and welcome Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov. Hi, Nadezhda. Privet, Brendan. Hello. So what have you got for us today, Nadezhda? Well, last week I introduced Dame Jocelyn Bell and her discovery of pulsars. And I mentioned neutron stars, but I was not too happy that we just left it there. There is so much fascinating research being done on pulsars and neutron stars that I thought we might delve into it a little deeper this week, Brendan, if that is okay. And I will also mention the sad passing of one of the pioneers of Australian radio astronomy, Owen Bruce Lee. He died just yesterday, aged 92, and he was a compatriot of Ruby Payne Scott, who we talked about two weeks ago. He did some very controversial work in his time and overturned the steady state model of the universe. Oh, that is sad, Nadezhda. I'll look forward to hearing about his achievements. We'll stay online and we'll move on to the next segment and we'll talk to you a little bit later. News for Wednesday, 24 August 2016. First. 
from pctablet.co.in. NASA Hubble Space Telescope spots mystery dwarf galaxies. Hubble has detected a virtually stunning image of lopsided links named NGC 2337. The new irregular shaped galaxy has been located 25 million light years away in the constellation of Lynx. The researchers have named the galaxies as Pisces A and B. These two dwarf galaxies have been locked and trapped in the void for over 100 million years. However, they have not collided with each other, which is still a mystery. Story 2 is from abc.net.au. Queensland astronomers will join the search for life on other planets with plans to build six telescopes on a remote Darling Downs property west of Brisbane. The University of Southern Queensland has secured $1.7 million for the first telescope and supporting technology, which is to be built in the next 18 months. NASA and other international groups have also expressed interest in the project, Minerva Australis, and there are plans for at least six telescopes to be built on the site. There are three telescopes on the site currently, but they are not powerful enough for USQ's aspirations. Associate Professor John T. Horner said once the first new telescope was operational, they would be able to survey the night sky, looking for planets around other stars. Our third story comes from Belinda Smith, writing for cosmosmagazine.com. Star snapped, blasting out of hibernation in massive explosion. A white dwarf star that had been nibbling at a companion star has been caught gorging itself and exploding in a bright blast. Astronomers in Poland, the US and the UK reported their binary star, called a classical nova, in nature. It provided a view into how classical novae unfold and dial down. Not to be confused with supernovae, where massive stars in their death throes explode in a cataclysmic blast, classical novae are less violent, but no less curious. As a white dwarf star, the old, dense, hot core of a star that's exhausted its nuclear fuel drags matter off a companion star, it glows a little. Occasionally, a clump of matter will be dumped onto the white dwarf all at once, causing a brief brightening called a dwarf nova outburst. If the clump is big enough, it can trigger runaway thermonuclear reactions on the white dwarf's surface leading to a gigantic explosion that boosts a star's system's brightness 10,000-fold. A double star system, V1213 Sin, is a classical nova located in the Centaurus constellation. For the first six years of observation, they saw dwarf nova outbursts every two to four weeks, indicating minor matter dumps onto the white dwarf. But then, in May 2009, six days of outbursts occurred. Then, the classical Nova erupted, burping out an immense blast of radiation detected by the researchers. The puzzle and research continues to understand the processes in this system. Story 4 is from scienceblog.com. Insights into the dawn of the universe. What did the universe look like just after the Big Bang? How did the first stars and galaxies evolve? Seeking answers to these questions... Researchers at Bielefeld University in Germany are looking way back into the past. 
With the digital radio telescope LOFAR, they are picking up signals that have taken billions of years to reach us. Shortly after the Big Bang, before there was structure or a star, the universe consisted of only neutral hydrogen. There was no light, and that is why this epoch is also called the Dark Ages of the Universe, explains Professor Dr. Marcus Bruggen. The only radiation was weak and came from neutral hydrogen. This radiation reaches us exactly the frequency range in which we are carrying out our measurements. This frequency range is very low, between 10 and 240 megahertz, and has hardly been explored before. LOFAR stands for Low Frequency Array. LOFAR is made up of the total of 49 antenna fields spread throughout Europe. Such a wide dissemination permits a far higher resolution than was possible at any one single location. This is why partners from Germany, the Netherlands, Poland, Great Britain, France, Sweden and Ireland have joined together to build the largest radio telescope in the world. <laughs> now, I thought a Rishabo was, or perhaps the Russian Rathan 600 that Nadezhda told about us. I thought that was the largest one. Then again, we saw news that a Chinese fast was biggest. And then we heard SCAR was the biggest radio telescope in the world. And now we've learnt that actually LOFAR is the biggest. Story 5 is from astronomynow.com. Fifth force of nature could be key to understanding dark matter. Recent findings indicating the possible discovery of a previously unknown subatomic particle may be evidence of a fifth fundamental force of nature, according to a paper published in the journal Physical Review Letters by theoretical physicists at the University of California, Irvine. If true, it's revolutionary, said Jonathan Feng, Professor of Physics and Astronomy. For decades, we've known of four fundamental forces, gravitation, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear forces. If confirmed by further experiments, this discovery of a possible fifth force would completely change our understanding of the universe, with consequences for the unification of forces and dark matter. Peer review and replication... We're looking at you. Story 6 from sciencealert.com by Peter Dockrell. NASA just announced that any published research funded by the Space Agency will now be available at no cost, launching a new public web portal that anyone can access. The free online archive comes in response to a new NASA policy which requires that any NASA-funded research articles in peer-reviewed journals be publicly accessible within one year of publication. The database is called PubSpace, and the public can access NASA-funded research articles in it by searching for whatever they're interested in or by just browsing all the NASA-funded papers. Making our research data easier to access will greatly magnify the impact of our research, said NASA Chief Chief Scientist Alan Stoffan. As scientists and engineers, we work by building upon a foundation laid by others. So that's good news and bad news. Good in that there are new troves of research available. Bad in that there goes the weekend. 
Our seventh and final story is a great story by at Astro Katie via CosmosMagazine.com. It's hard to observe the universe when it's constantly moving away from you, writes Dr. Katie Mack. Two of the biggest misconceptions about cosmology are that the universe must have a limit and that our ability to learn about it doesn't. Although we know it had a beginning in time, nothing in our observations suggests that the universe has an edge. The universe seems pretty much the same in all directions. It's a basic tenet of cosmology that there's no special place in the universe. It's called the cosmological principle. Now, we could say that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, but Katie says it with an unqualified clarity. So read this story yourself. Can't recommend it highly enough. Go to tinyearl.com forward slash astrokatie. All one word, all lowercase. It's a great read. Thank you, Dr. Katie. That was the news. Now, are you still there, Nadeshta? Ah, I am still here, Brendan. Well, go right ahead. The microphone is all yours. Well, this first report is a sad item I got from a European report from theregister.co.uk. You see, one of your pioneers of your Australian radio astronomy, Owen Bruce Lee, has died in Australia, aged 92. Slee had just been honoured by the International Astronomy Union, which named Minor Planet 9391 Slee after him. See, back in the 1950s, under a team led by Bernard Mills, Slee and his colleagues Alec Little and Kevin Sheridan made observations which brought them into conflict with Fred Hoyle and which helped the expanding universe model supplant Hoyle's steady-state model. Slee's earliest training came during World War II when he worked as an aircraftsman and trained in radio mechanics and radar mechanics. That led to his interest in radio astronomy as sergeant in charge of a radar station near Darwin. He observed solar coronal radio emissions at 200 megahertz. That's about the wavelength of 1.5 meters. You might recall a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Ruby Payne Scott also using radar equipment to study the sun. Well, while not the only person to make that discovery during the war, Slee had no opportunity to learn what others had seen because it was regarded as a top secret. So Slee joined Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Industrial Research Organization, CSIRO, in 1946 at the request of Dr. Joe Palsy, who was the head of Ruby Payne Scott's radio astronomy group. Slee moved from Darwin to Sydney with his family and while working as a technical assistant studied radio engineering and physics. Slee worked with Gordon Stanley and John Bolton 
to investigate the discovery of a radio star in the constellation Cygnus, originally spotted by British astronomer James Hay. Working with a Yagi antenna set up at the Sydney beachside suburb of Dover Heights, those three were able to demonstrate that the Cygnus signal came from multiple sources. The Crab Nebula, two colliding galaxies and two individual galaxies. Slee also took part in a project to dig by hand a 22-meter parabolic hole in the shape of a dish, and they lined it with metal strips that they scavenged from packing cases. With their sand antenna, the group identified the temperature contours of the center of the Milky Way, the first such observation, and following this, better funding arrived, and the same team went on to construct a Mills Cross antenna. We will have to devote several episodes to the many and varied designs of radio telescopes, Brendan. Anyway, their Mills Cross telescope helped overturn the steady-state universe theory. You see, the data from their Mills Cross telescope, named after Bernard Mills, a CSIRO engineer, catalogued more than 2,000 radio sources. And this started a controversy with one of the giants of astronomy, Fred Hoyle at Cambridge University. From Hoyle's point of view, their measurements from Mills Cross must be wrong because Hoyle was worried that the results, they disagreed with the English survey that supported the steady state hypothesis. Now, just to explain, Brendan, the steady state theory, it was a view that the universe is always expected but maintaining a constant average density, matter being continuously created to form new stars and galaxies at the same rate that the old ones become unobservable as a consequence of their increasing distance and velocity of recession. This theory was first put forward by Sir James Jeans in about 1920 and was further developed by Sir Fred Hoyle to deal with problems that had arisen in connection with the alternative Big Bang hypothesis, which is now a very well-established theory. So, the Australians stuck with their results because they said somewhere the Cambridge group must have gone wrong and over time the steady-state model faded into history. It would be a mistake to treat this as the pinnacle of Slee's career. However, he went on to work with most of Australia's important instruments, the famous Parkes Radio Telescope, the Kalgoorra Circular Array, and the Australian Telescope Compact Array. So vale Owen Bruce Slee. And that reminds me of another thing, Brendan. We are going to have to explain the difference between a theory, a high hypothesis and a model. It is so easy to mix them all up together. So let us continue our study of pulsars and neutron stars. So we need to ask the question, what is a neutron star? Let us imagine a star as big as our sun or maybe a hundred times as big as our sun. Now every star has three main 
forces are acting on it. There is a rotational force. Most stars are spinning, some fast, some slow. There is the gravitational force. It is wanting to collapse because matter is always attracted to itself. And thirdly, there is the internal force of the temperature, the heat, pushing outwards. And normally, a star is in equilibrium. The internal force pushing outward is equal to the gravitational force pushing inwards. But after the star has used up all its fuel, the internal force diminishes. And so the gravitational force wins and crunch. The star collapses on itself. It blows off its outer shell and it collapses down into a neutron star, which, as the name suggests, is made up only of neutrons. So we start with a star maybe a million kilometers across and it collapses into something maybe 20 kilometers across. So you can imagine it is very, very dense. A teaspoon would weigh millions of tons. Now you may have heard of one of the laws of nature and that is conservation of momentum. That means if we have a star millions of kilometers across and it is spinning slowly, then if it collapses down into a neutron star only about 20 kilometers across, it will have to rotate very quickly because all of that momentum is conserved. It's just like a ballerina from the Marienska Ballet. She will start with her arms wide and one leg out to the side. She will pirouette. She will pull in her arms. She will pull her leg up and rotate and pirouette on one tiny toe very, very quickly. Now, our hypothetical ballerina is now suddenly as skinny as a piece of fishing line. And she is rotating so quickly she is just a blur. Well, that is what a neutron star does. Now, some neutron stars are highly magnetized for reasons we are not entirely sure of. It's a very exciting area of research. But if we have our spinning neutron star, it's highly magnetized and the rotational axis is not aligned with the magnetic axis. When this star loses energy, it drives out along the magnetic lines of force like a lighthouse beaming. And sometimes those beams hit the Earth. And you can imagine the excitement of radio astronomers when they point their dishes at the stars and suddenly they hear these amazing flashes of radio noise. Last week we listened to a pulsar that was rotating 1.4 times per second. Now we are going to listen to the very famous Villa pulsar.
The Villa Pulsala is near the center of the Villa Supernova Remnant, which is said to breathe the leftovers of the explosion of a massive star about 10,000 years ago. The pulsar is a collapsed core of this star, rotating with a period of 89 milliseconds, or that's about 11 times per second. This next one is a crab pulsar, rotating at about 30 times per second. Now that crab pulsar, the one you just heard, is the youngest known pulsar. That means we know it came into existence only about a thousand years ago. It's from the middle of the crab nebula, and when it exploded it was so bright that the Europeans and the Chinese could both see it in the daytime, and there's records of them observing it in the year 1054. Finally, we will listen to the fastest known pulsar, and it is rotating at 642 times per second. So that is a pulsar rotating 642 times a second. And you can imagine, rotating at that speed, it should tear itself apart. It should just fly off in every direction, but it doesn't because there's enormous gravitational forces which are holding it together despite the immense centrifugal forces trying to tear it apart. So pulsars are the glamour rock stars of radio astronomy, but they represent just a tiny fraction of the research that is happening in radio astronomy and astrophysics. We can say a lot more about pulsars and neutron stars, but it will have to wait for another session. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you, Nadezhda. We'll see you next week. Bye now. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good. I'm very well, but a little bit exhausted today. For people who are not in Australia, they may wish to know or may not wish to know that uh, this is the end of what has been Science Week in Australia, which kicked off with Science Alive, a massive science expo that we have in the, the Royal Showgrounds, and finished today with a number of things. But today I was helping out at Kids Navigate Neuroscience, where primary school kids are exposed to a number of neuroscience concepts through fun games and a bunch of other things. Fantastic, Ian. You can't start neuroscience too early. No. It was a good way to uh, to uh, expunge the disappointment of this morning. Uh, this morning I got up early in order to see if I could catch images of the International Space Station going across the moon. And I got myself all set up. And just as I was ready to start taking video, the clouds covered the moon completely and missed the uh, transit absolutely and completely and utterly. Now, it has been a huge week. There were over 2,000 Science Week events this week in Australia, Mm -hmm. as we mentioned in last week's podcast. Now, can you tell us what you did at uni this week? 
Uni this week, I mostly uh, supervise students as they attempted to get experiments working. You may have been, remember from last week that we were having contamination problems in our cell lines. We think we've fixed that, running running tests to make sure that the cells uh, that we've defrosted and we've got growing are all competent, haven't tainted into something else, and everything's looking really good. So apart from delivering a number of lectures and writing a, a couple of, uh, trying to plead a couple of papers, we've been mostly hanging out with students trying to get experiments organised. So far, yeah, we've got to the point where we can kill cells quite nicely. Now <laughs> the next point is to where we can kill cells with the uh, compounds that we wish to test and then rescue them. Fantastic. Uh, as, as you know, or as you listeners may know, my research revolves around uh, revolves around neurons and neuron survival under a variety of conditions. We've got one research project which is looking at Alzheimer's disease where we kill off the nerve cells with toxic protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease and then we try and use natural products to rescue it and that's about to enter a very exciting phase when we're looking trying to develop a, a small animal model of Alzheimer's disease the Alzheimer's fruit fly that may sound funny but uh, the Alzheimer's fruit fly if you they've already developed mouse models where they put in the human genes uh, for the toxic proteins into the mice and although they, these do develop the some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease it takes almost uh, for a year or more for this to develop but if you want to test drugs, you've got to wait a very long time. Whereas a fruit fly starts developing toxic effects within a matter of weeks. And so you're able to test your drugs a lot earlier and in large quantities. So you're able to do a much better screening test. So that was that was this week at uni. Thank you very much, Ian. Sounds like a fabulous week. You're doing some fascinating work there. Now, I followed your advice from last week and I went out and checked out that triangle of Mars, Saturn and Antares and I watched it progress over the sky over several nights and it started off as an equilateral triangle and um, it finished up more of an isosceles triangle but it was fabulous watching it. Yeah, unfortunately for me, the most nights were clouded out you've been watching the horizon too you've been seeing venus mercury and jupiter go from being a line to being a triangle and which brings me to what's up in the sky this week because the process that you've been watching over the past uh, week will continue so at the beginning of this week when this is the cast is available to listeners you'll see something really quite nice which is the bright red star Antares, red mars itself and saturn basically in a straight line uh, the best straight line is on on the uh, wednesday night on the 24th but on the 25th is pretty good too and then after it'll start extending so you'll so the you'll see it become an isosceles triangle then the equilateral triangle again but mars is moving away from antares and saturn so that will be very nice to watch over the coming week another nice and again going back to the western horizon you will see the uh, triangle formed by mercury jupiter and venus and this is now quite visible uh, quite late into the twilight so it's it's readily visible an hour after uh, sunset uh, a very distinct triangle in the uh, evening uh, twilight. And, 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 uh, and this is the main event of the planetary dance we've been having for the uh, past uh, month. As you watch over the, the next few nights, you'll see Venus and Jupiter come closer and closer and closer until the 27th, 28th. You'll see you know, Venus and Jupiter will be less than half a lunar diameter apart. In fact, they're so close, not only will they be together in a pair in uh, the field of view of a pair of binoculars, low power telescope eyepieces, say at uh, 20 to 25 millimeter, 
uh, eyepieces will fit them in quite nicely. Fantastic. What date is that for that event? Uh, that's the 27th and 28th. But you'll be able to see this magnificent spectacle of, of two bright planets really close together and uh, Mercury right close by. Fantastic, Ian. And last week, your explanation of magnitudes and how we decide which stars are called Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta went down very well. We got some good feedback there. And so we thought we might introduce a new section called Ian's Tangent. Have you got a tangent for us today, Ian? Yes, I have a tangent for you. And the tangent is related to pairing of Venus and Jupiter that I talked about before. If you are looking at Jupiter binoculars, you may, if you are paying close attention, see some bright stars attendant to Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter, those are Jupiter's Galilean moons, so-called because they were picked up by uh, Galileo with his first telescopes. And if you watch from night to night, you can see them move around uh, Jupiter. Uh, and this is really nice because you need really uh, big telescopes to see Jupiter's moons and appreciate them. And you can see them forming very pretty patterns. Uh, seeing uh, eclipses and occultations are a little bit more difficult with binoculars, but still it's, it's, it is possible if you've got... Uh, a, a good set of binoculars, like a, a good pair of ten by fifty binoculars, will really bring out the um, uh, bring out Jupiter's moons. Now, you may not know this, but if Jupiter wasn't there, Jupiter's moons bright enough to see by themselves. So they all range from uh, magnitudes uh, from around about five point eight. You remember from last week, magnitude six is the dimmest your eye can see under uh, dark skies uh, with reasonable eyesight. Again, some people are much better under really dark skies. People with excellent eyesight can see the under magnitude 6.5. But they range from uh, magnitude uh, 5.8 all the way up to a relatively bright 4.6. And uh, brightest of them all is, is our friend uh, Ganymede. No, sorry, that's not, no, sorry, Ganymede. Ganymede is the brightest of the uh, Galilean satellites. And if you can block out uh, Jupiter's light, you should be able to see it relatively easily. In fact, uh, when Jupiter's op at opposition, when the Galilean moons are, uh, are at their furthest distance from Jupiter, it's possible to see uh, Ganymede by, if you can just position yourself so that Jupiter's behind a, uh, a solid object like a tree or a building or something, just make Jupiter disappear. You, If you know exactly where you're looking, you uh, you're potentially can see uh, Ganymede with the unaided eye. That sounds like a fantastic challenge. Now, yeah. also, while we're on that, I have used uh, binoculars to look at Jupiter, but one of the problems is keeping it steady. So leaning against a post or a tree is always a good thing. But I did or find things. that there's a nice little clip that you can get on eBay for about $8 that will allow you to clip your binoculars onto a tripod. And it makes a huge difference if you can hold your binoculars still to look at Jupiter's moons or to look at anything really. As well as, well as clips, uh, some of the more modern binoculars actually have a screw adapter and you can buy a little device which screws solidly onto your tripod and then screws into the, the binoculars themselves. Fantastic, and, and we'll mention again also skippysky.com. That's a great way to find out if there's going to be any clouds overhead over the next 24, 36, 48 yeah. hours. Yeah. And very good, Ian, and we often talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. 
if you do go out with your binoculars or your telescope and you do see those moons of Jupiter, then what you're really doing is you're just repeating something that Galileo did 400 years ago. And remember 400 years ago when he first cast, cast his telescope at Jupiter, no one had an, had an idea that um, the uh, wandering planets were anything other than lights embedded uh, on um, crystalline spheres, the idea that there were objects rotating around Jupiter much like the moon rotated around Earth, uh, was it was an amazing uh, mental leap. And it's very hard for us these days to understand the degree of, of genius that we need to see that, to make sense of these little lights moving around a bigger light, to understand that these things were moons, planets in their own right, uh, wandering around Jupiter. And it was seen as heresy. Yeah, heresy was involved, but... It was the issue that went from being a sort of back burner thing to being far more important because of the Protestant Reformation threatening the authority of the Pope, um, Galileo being a bit of a, a grumble bum, and uh, a, a whole range of back, back, backdoor politics. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ian. It's been great talking with you again. And um, just one, one minor thing that I should mention for if you have any listeners who are in Africa. Um, on September the 1st, there's going to be a annalunar eclipse the, of the sun passing over Gabon, Congo, Tanzania, uh, Mozambique and Madagascar. So uh, any uh, listeners there, uh, 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 an annalunar eclipse is a bit different from a total solar eclipse in that, uh, as you know, the moon has an elliptic orbit around, about, around the Earth. And when you have uh, the moon at its furthest part, of its orbit when it passes in front of the sun. It's just a little bit too small to totally cover the sun. And so you have this narrow ring of sun around the uh, around the moon. So you don't get the gorgeous uh, corona that you see in a total eclipse, but you can see some wonderful effects where you have uh, this very thin rim of, of uh, sun around the moon. And again, of course, uh, you take all the appropriate precautions looking at a solar eclipse you go to the um, NASA Eclipse website, it'll give you all the details you need to follow this eclipse. Yes, well, there are, there are eclipse chasers, just like there's aurora hunters. Uh, there are people who chase eclipses all around the world, and yeah. so there'll probably be some people heading over to Africa. I notice on the blogosphere that there's already a lot of Americans very excited about a total eclipse that's going to transect the whole continent. In 2017, there will be a magnificent total eclipse uh, through um, America. Very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much for talking with us again. And we'll it was my, my pleasure. We'll see you next week. Until then, clear skies. Thanks, Ian. That was Dr. Ian Musgrave. And you can just Google Astroblogger to find out all of that information he just gave you, plus more. He regularly updates it each week. See you next week. Radio Wave!